John Durham appears before the House Judiciary and receives rough treatment from both sides. Adam Schiff is censored by the House for misleading the public about the Trump-Russia investigation, and the search for the missing submersible enters a critical phase. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Welcome in to a Thursday morning edition of the program. We're glad to have you listening to the show. Those of you who are listening live at drtonybean.com, that's drtonybean.com. We appreciate you taking the time to listen live. And if you don't have time to listen to the program live, you can download the podcast. It's Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. I'm pretty sure you can just uh, Google my name and you should be able to find it. In fact, I tried that yesterday and I found all kind of stuff um, that's out there under my name. But part of what you can find is where the podcasts are. If you're interested in following the podcast, that's all you have to do. It'll come straight to your smart device. Those of you who listen to podcasts, I apologize for telling you things that you've known for a long time. But uh, there are people that are new to the podcasting world And I know a lot of those folks used to listen to me when I was on the radio for about 22 years, and they're they're now navigating, just like I am, uh, the podcast world and the internet world in terms of, I've I've been doing the internet for a long time, but not trying to broadcast live on the internet and then turning that into a podcast and putting it up on YouTube and Facebook and doing all those kind of things, which you you really have to do. You, you You can actually have a broader reach by doing all of that than you can by just sitting at a microphone uh, doing a radio show, uh, depending on the, the number of people. I mean, there's just so many more people that are on the web that are downloading podcasts and following and doing all those kind of things. So if you're new to the show, I thought I'd take a few minutes today before we start talking about John Durham's appearance in the Judiciary Committee, which turned out to be, um, well, a lot of fireworks from both sides of the aisle, which is interesting. Um, But you may be just new to the program, or you may be wondering what to tell other people about the show. And I I would just say that the name of the show kind of talks about my goal for the program, of why I'm doing this, Uh, truth and politics and culture. If, if you look at the news today, it's really difficult to figure out what's true when there's so many stories from so many different angles. It used to be that news, at least in the modern era, let's put it that way, um, news was presented from a factual basis. It was not emotional in terms of the person who delivered the news. I mean, if you go back and listen to... Um, Walter Cronkite and some of those guys from a long, long time ago when there were three networks and the news anchors would sort of have this sober tone and they would deliver the news uh, in that sober tone in a way that uh, made you want to sit up and pay attention. But, but it was not passionate in the sense that 
every word was parsed or there was a lot of motion behind the new the deliverer of the news. It was simply laying out the facts. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't bias back then because there was. Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite. I mean, even in that in the early days, earlier days of the news media, the the people who were driving the ship were mostly leaning to the left. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to exonerate them or, or put them up on a pedestal. I'm just saying that, that they didn't go overboard in presenting the news from a particular viewpoint. They would skew the news, but not just outright lie about it or, um, or lean completely in one direction while they were delivering the news. Now, we have people today who are doing that and have been doing it for the last decade or more. And that makes it hard. If, if, you're, if you are a normal, what I call a normal American citizen, and, and what is a normal American citizen? Well, you've got a job. You've probably got a family. Uh, you're trying to make sure that you keep food on the table, that you keep clothes on their back, that you have some extra money put away for a rainy day and maybe uh, for retirement someday. Uh, you're taking care of your house. You're doing your job. You're you're dedicated to serving in whatever position that God has called you to be in. And so you get up every day, and your day is not consumed the way it is with many people with Twitter. Uh, what is your Twitter feed? What does Facebook look like? How many Instagram posts can you do in a day? How many tweets can you put out? How much TikTok can you get in front of people? I mean, most people are not consumed by that. They may jump in and jump out. But in terms of being consumed by the news every day and commenting on it every five minutes, um, it just doesn't happen because life happens. And when life's happening, you've got to get out there and live it. You can't spend your life doing the things that I just described. So what I'm trying to do with this program, and it's going to take a while to build it up. I, I realize that. I mean, I can't just jump out there with sort of a, a, a brand new podcast and expect the thing to explode overnight. As someone told me yesterday <laughs> in a conversation, what, you're not Ben Shapiro. Well, I'm not. I don't, uh, I don't have a multi-million dollar business. I don't have 300 employees. Uh, I haven't written uh, all these bestseller books. And obviously I'm doing this Radio, well, radio, see how long I've been in radio. I'm doing this internet show and podcast here in my dining room with my two daughters and my daughter-in-law's wedding picture in the background. Haven't, haven't even figured out how to use this green screen that I've got on the floor here behind me uh, to be able to project a different background. But in any event, what, what, what I am trying to do and, and what I'm trying to establish is my goal is to look at the news, spend some time that you probably don't have, um, and 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 I I don't know that I do, but but I'm I'm carving out the time to read the stories, reflect on them, think about them from a biblical perspective, and try to bring to you the facts. And and there and and let me say this: when I present the facts, they are going to be passionate because that's just a I, I I'm a I, that's me. Um, I'm passionate about things that are true. I'm, I'm passionate about the most important things in my life. I'm passionate about my relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I'm passionate about my wife that I've been married to for 43 years and I love dearly. I'm passionate about my two daughters and my son and our nine grandchildren. Um, I'm passionate about North Greenville University. Um, I'm passionate about the South Carolina Baptist Convention because I believe that through the, uh, the, the convention, there's a lot of good work being doing being done for the kingdom to support the churches in South Carolina. I'm passionate about North Greenville University because that's where we're equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. We're building up future business leaders, future theologians, future pastors, future educators uh, to do incredible things in our culture based on a foundation of the Christian worldview. So when I talk about the news and I think about our culture, and I know that everything in our culture is going to affect the things that I'm passionate about. Um, the way our culture goes is going to affect North Greenville University. It's going to affect the South Carolina Baptist Convention. The way our culture goes is certainly going to affect my children and, most importantly, my grandchildren's lives. Why do I say most importantly? Am I saying that my grandchildren are more important than my, than my children? No. I'm simply saying that as we move further and further toward the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what I believe that we're doing every day, we're moving further and further away from a grasp of the truth in our culture, and my grandchildren are going to have to live in that world longer than my children or myself. And so I'm passionate about trying to get the truth out to people who are interested in it to try to make the world and the culture a little bit better place. I, I was challenged about this yesterday. That's why I'm talking about it a little bit today. It's, it's why are you doing what you're doing? And, you know, it, when it really comes down to it, I'm not, I, 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 if you notice, I don't have sponsors for this podcast. Now, um, I, I'm not opposed to that. If there are people who think that their message would be in line with mine and they'd like to promote something, I mean, I'd, I'd be glad to, to have sponsors. But I'm not in this for the money. I mean, I, I it's costing me money to do this. Uh, if I can someday monetize it to the point that I can make some of that money back, fine. But if not, I've never been driven or motivated by money. And maybe I should have been a little bit more so, uh, simply because I, I might be in a better financial position. And I, I'm not complaining. God has provided for me and my family um, and I am blessed, okay? So don't, I, I'm, I'm not poor-mouthing. I'm just simply saying that it's a lot of times to become wealthy, it's like anything else. It takes the pursuit of that thing that you want uh, to have it, and I've just not been willing or motivated by the idea of making a whole lot of money to do things. I do things because I think they're important, and I genuinely want to make a difference, and the way that I'm trying to do that now is in the way that I serve at North Greenville University, the way that I serve the South Carolina Baptist Convention, the way that I serve my wife and take care of my family, and finally, um, the way, well, the way that I, I preach. I still, God gives me opportunities to preach. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this show from a platform of being an interim pastor. I've been interim pastor tw 20 different uh, times that's about 18 churches, 17, 18 churches. Some of the churches I've I've been interim more than once, um, and God has opened that door for me to be able to preach and teach. 
Um, last night, I was at Five Forks doing Bible study on 1 Corinthians. And that's important to me because the foundation of truth and politics and culture is the Word of God. And so I'm, I'm passionate about all those things. So if you're wondering, okay, who is this guy? Why is he doing what he's doing? What the heck is he doing? Um, this is it. I just told you. And if that's something that you think you're interested in, um, please uh, follow me on YouTube and Facebook and follow, go to the podcast where you can get it, Apple Podcast, Spotify, other places where podcasts are available, and just follow. That's all you have to do. It'll come to your smart device and you can listen to it at your leisure. So anyway, just a little bit today about me. All right, John Durham. Um, now, first question, who is John Durham? Well, he's a special prosecutor, uh, investigator, that was appointed um, by President Trump to investigate the source of the FBI's investigation and the Justice Department's accusations that President Trump was colluding with the Russians to throw the 2016 election. And he issued his report a few months ago, and that report was about three, 400 pages, something like that. I, I didn't read the entire report. I read the, the overview, sort of the synopsis. I read portions of the report. I watched uh, video and news stories, people that I trust that were reporting on the report. And here's what it seems to me, because what we're going to talk about today is that Durham yesterday, interestingly enough, usually when you go before a committee it, 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 you know, in the House, then all of the Republicans are either going to be for or against a witness, and all of the Democrats are going to be either for or against a witness. And John Durham went up yesterday, and for the most part, Republicans were what I would call sympathetic. That is, they were asking questions that would elicit responses from Durham that would indict this whole investigation into Trump, which was the, the Russia collusion investigation was years of nothing. It was years of the FBI and the Justice Department manufacturing, taking, well, actually taking manufactured stories because we know the Steele dossier was opposition research by fusing GPS that was paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign. I mean, those things are, when that first came out, that was scandalous. The idea that that would happen, oh, things like this, we just don't do these things, we don't do, oh, sure we do. Uh, at, at least the Clinton, Clinton campaign does it. That, that's where that information came from. And yet, you, you know, we, we, we saw what it did to the Trump presidency. And so... There needed to be an investigation to find out how something like this could happen in America. How in the world can we spend the kind of money that we spent, have the number of people and resources focused that we focused on a, an accusation against a, a, a presidential candidate and then a sitting president that was based on stories that the FBI knew were false. It's, it's not that they took these stories and down the road they discovered that they were not true or the information was not true. They knew from the beginning that the information that they were being given was not, it was uncooperated, it was unverified, it was questionable to say the least, 
And yet they took that information as a basis for its investigation and accusations against the Trump campaign, and then later against President Trump. So, you know, rather than highlighting a lack of training or competency, you know, when, when John Durham started looking into this, he found out that this isn't about FBI agents that didn't know how to do their job. This isn't about a Justice Department that was incompetent. The report highlighted a lack of integrity on the part of a lot of people in the Justice Department who participated in an investigation that was poorly conducted. Not poorly conducted as in we don't know what we're doing, but poorly conducted in as in we know exactly what we're doing. And what we're doing is we've got the thumb on the scale toward prosecution of Donald Trump. That's what became, that, as, as we all know, uh, Peter Strzok. We, we know that he was prejudiced. He was a lead investigator in, the, in, in all of the Russia collusion um, stories and, and, and the investigations that went on. And we know that he, he had an ax to grind against President Trump, and he was grinding it through this investigation. Rather than looking for the truth, he decided what the truth was to be, and then he went out to find evidence supporting it. And he would use any evidence, he and others, um, Andrew McCabe, uh, you, you know, Brennan, all, all the, the, the notable suspects, the people over time who have been involved in this, in this investigation that have all basically ignored evidence that pointed away from collusion with President Trump and magnified evidence that was manufactured to make President Trump look guilty. Um, and and th these, are, these are not things that are even in question anymore. We're, we're not sitting here talking about controversial facts. We're talking about things that have been known not only from the Durham report, but from other investigations from the House and the Senate that have revealed all of this. And, and what we discover is that compelling and convincing evidence that the investigation was unwarranted into Trump, it was ignored by the FBI and the Justice Department, while spurious and, and even scurrilous information and leads were followed. Things that were so outrageous, they should have been questioned from the beginning, and things that were known, like the Steele dossier, everybody, pe people knew where the Steele dossier came from. They knew that Steele was being motivated by, that, that that information was motivated by money coming from the Clinton campaign to undermine Donald Trump as a candidate. So we start out with a passionate exchange between Representative Jim Jordan and chairman, who's chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he walked through the process with Durham. Um, I'm stalling here because i got to pull this up. I'm, I'm doing all my own production. Um, so he, he walks through the process here in this soundbite of, of pertinent information on the case concerning how the accusations originated from opposition research by the Clinton campaign. We've just been talking about that. And here, Jim Jordan highlights that and gets John Durham to comment on, to comment on it. In the summer of 2016, did our government receive intelligence that suggested Secretary Clinton had approved a plan to tie President Trump to Russia? Yes. Was that intelligence important enough for Director Brennan to go brief the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, the Attorney General of the United States, and the Director of the FBI? Yes. And was that intelligence put then into a memorandum, a referral memorandum? 
Yes. And was that memorandum then given to Director Comey and Agent Strzok? Yes. Did Director Comey share that memorandum with the FISA court? I'm not aware of that if he did. Did he share it with the agents on the case working the Crossfire Hurricane case? No. Didn't share it with the agents on the case. Can you tell the committee what happened when you took that referral memo and shared it with one of those agents, specifically Supervisory Special Agent Number 1? He indicated he had never seen it before. He immediately became emotional, got up and left the room with his lawyer, spent some time in the hallway, came back. He was and ticked off, wasn't he? Yes. He was ticked off because this is something he should have had as an agent on the case. It's important information that the director of the FBI kept from the people doing the investigation. Okay, Th this is this is incredible. I mean, for you know, you know, we hear this, we hear this exchange, and we. One of the things that I that worries me about our culture and about people in in general in society is that we hear things like this so often now that we kind of lose our sense of incredulity, another credulity. I mean, we, we, we lose the ability to hear this and be stunned by the weight of what was being said. As, as, as you just heard, Jim Jordan laid out in detail the fact that it was known at the beginning that all of this information from the Steele dossier was paid for by the Clinton campaign. It was put into a memo. The, the, the president, the vice president, the, the uh, attorney general, everybody associated with any of this was informed that the information that they were going to use as a basis for a deeper investigation into the Trump campaign came from opposition research from the Clinton campaign. And then all of that was withheld from the investigators. It was known by the upper echelon, but the people on the ground, the people who had to take the information and run with it and do something and produce information through an investigation, they didn't have a clue. The, the chain of people who touched this memorandum, who had this information, and yet did absolutely were were willing to withhold it from the people who were going to be responsible for revealing what really happened is incredible. Um, I know we sensationalize things sometimes, sometimes, but I, to be honest with you, I don't see how this can be sensationalized beyond the basic facts of what just of what just transpired between Representative Jim Jordan and John Durham. That information, all of it, taken the full weight of it, is an incredible indictment of our justice system, our and, and our way of life. Actually, I mean, we 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 can't have a justice system that is geared toward the prosecution of political enemies. And this is the the appearance that we see in in the justice system today that they're willing to magnify evidence that supports a narrative or a presupposition about a person based on their political stands, but they're also willing, on the other hand, to ignore evidence that would indict people that agree with their narrative or supports their political stands. And you, in, in, a, in a constitutional republic like ours, 
Uh, we can't survive that. This is the kind of stuff that happens in communism, in communist countries. This is the kind of stuff that happens. I don't even want to give banana republics a worse name than they already have. This is the kind of stuff that happens where governments are con completely and totally corrupt. And it's hard for us as the American people, at least it is for me, to accept the fact that we've reached this level of corruption when it comes to our own government. I mean, I was raised to respect authority. In our house, even if you disagreed, you were disagreeable. I mean, you, you could disagree without being disagreeable is what I mean to say. You, you respected the person, the office. Now, the person in the office may not deserve your respect because maybe they're abusing that office, but you respected the office. And we have arrived at a time in American history a very dangerous time where the actions of the people in the office have become so egregious in their bias that it's causing large portions of the American people to rightly call our institutions into question. And this, is, this has to be cleaned up. This has got to stop. Democrats on the committee yesterday characterized Durham's, uh, Durham's excuse me, testimony as a political defense of Donald Trump, an attack against Hillary Clinton. I mean, they, they won't even acknowledge. When, when they had an opportunity to speak to this, they, they don't even acknowledge the fact that, you know, that, that the Clinton campaign was involved in this from the beginning. One Democrat member of the committee, Tennessee Representative Steve Cohen, went so far as to suggest that it's Durham's reputation. This, this is what, what blows my mind, that, that, that it would be suggested that John Durham's reputation is being ruined by the manner of, the, of his investigation into the, inve the false investigation that took place against Donald Trump. I mean, instead of worrying about the repu reputation of Robert Mueller, instead of worrying about the, the reputation of Adam Schiff, instead of worrying about the reputation of Andy McCabe or Peter Strzok or any of the people, uh, James Comey, that got involved in this, knowing the facts, knowing everything that I've just laid out for you, knowing it all ahead of time and still in, in getting into the investigation. What about their reputation? Why is it not their reputation? Because they're part of the narrative that's being set by one side of the political aisle. And so they must be defended. Even indefensible behavior must be defended at all costs by those who are politically motivated and pushing a narrative and doing their best to undermine a single person, and that person is Donald Trump. And look, I, I, two things can be true. I, I, I say this, I picked this up from Ben Shapiro, but it's, 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 I picked it up because it's, it's an excellent statement. Because it is true that two things can be going on at the same time. That you can have a, a political character who makes decisions and says things that are damaging to himself, and then you've got a bunch of people that are out to get him. And that's a, that, those two things are both true when it comes to Donald Trump. And that's a, that's a terrible formula because it means that Donald Trump is, is sometimes his own worst enemy. But, but, but here's the thing. It, it, the, the narrative that, it, that 
everybody in the Justice Department did exactly what they were supposed to do and that all of this is Trump's fault and it's all Republicans' fault, that that is unsupportable by the facts. That is a narrative that no longer can stand. I mean, it, it was covered for years by the press, the mainstream press, the legacy media. They covered up this idea or the fact that the, the Justice Department was conducting investigations based on bogus information that they knew from the beginning was not true. And so everybody kind of wondered, well, is this possible? Could this happen? The answer is yes. Um, it's not only possible through John Durham's investigation and others, we know that it absolutely happened and it absolutely has to be stopped if America is going to survive as the constitutional republic that we are. We can't have this kind of lack of integrity, which is exactly what John Durham called it, and he's exactly right to go there, instead of because some people have characterized the FBI's investigation into President Trump, well, they just had the wrong agents. This is about incompetency. It's not. It's not about incompetency. It's about the truth. It's about integrity. It's about the people who were conducting the, the investigation that were not focused on justice, they were focused on bringing a particular person down. And we can't have that in America when it relates to our justice system. So Representative Stephen Cohen, he's a Democrat representative from Tennessee, he goes after Durham's reputation, and Durham's response bought, brought applause in the hearing, and it blew up on social media. Here we go. You were a part of it. You have a good reputation. You had a good reputation. That's why the two Democrats supported you. But the longer you hold on to Mr. Barr and this report that Mr. Barr gave you as special counsel, your reputation will be damaged. As everybody's reputation who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged, he's damaged goods. There's no good dealing with him because you will end up on the bottom of a pyre. I yield back the balance of my time. Sure. My, Can we uh, presume the gentleman's undecided on, on how he feels about the former president? Gentlemen, witness can respond. Yeah, my uh, concern about my reputation is with uh, the people who I respect, and my family, and my Lord. And I'm perfectly comfortable with my reputation with them, sir. That drew applause. That is the kind of answer that needed to be given by Durham at that particular point. His reputation was not based on the attacks that were coming from that committee. His reputation was based on the integrity of his investigation and the integrity that he knew that he carried personally with his relationship with the Lord. I mean, I'm, I'm gratified. I, when you hear somebody like this reference their relationship with the Lord and how they're accountable to God, that, that, that encourages me because it says we still have people like that in government that are willing to follow the truth no matter where it leads, even though they're viciously attacked and their reputation called into question. All right, let's see if we have Lisa Van Riper on the phone. I, 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 she was calling in. I told her to call in, and she was. I hope she was able to hear all that while yeah. she was waiting. Okay, excellent. Lisa Van Riper is I president. Did. Uh, good. Let, let me give a, a quick introduction. Most of you don't need an introduction for her, but Lisa Van Riper is the president of South Carolina Citizens for Life. She's been a pro-life leader in South Carolina, a good friend and colleague of mine, 
for um, several decades now. We won't talk about how many. But when you hear that, as, as I was just stating, when you hear somebody like John Durham say, look, I'm accountable to God, and that's who I'm going to worry about my reputation with, that, does that encourage you to hear that in a, in a hearing like this? Uh, it does. It does. I was, I was gratified to hear that last night. Uh, of course, we have to understand that different people come to different views on what that accountability to God means, you know. Right. Um, Joe, Bi Joe Biden invokes, you know, the Lord hadn't led us this far uh, in, in reference to at the pride events and those kinds of things. Right. So uh, we have to understand people may come to different views on what the Lord requires of us. Um, however, the fact that he is referencing that he is accountable to a God and not just to simply laws that can change with man, uh, that, that is encouraging. And I don't think he was taking that. I don't think he was using that in a uh, politically profane way as sometimes politicians and we do sometimes. You know, we'll, we'll invoke the name of the Lord for our own political agenda. That is not what he was doing, in my opinion, yesterday. No, I, I, I agree. Um, I, there... And I appreciate you pointing out the difference because I think our, our listeners need to think about this. There's a difference between injecting religion or faith into a situation for a political purpose and a, a position that rises from someone in response to a political situation. And those two things can actually be seen pretty clearly. In other words, if, if you pay attention, you can tell particularly when a, when a politician or a political leader is injecting faith for a purpose and when it's a genuine response to something that that person is experiencing in their life. And, and we as believers need to be able to identify and to be able to discern between those two things. Because you're right, Lisa, um, there's a lot, the, the words God and, and even the name Jesus Christ and words like faith and belief, they get thrown around a lot pretty carelessly. And so we need to be able to discern when somebody's responding in a way that their faith has been activated by the situation, as opposed to a situation where they've inserted faith to try to make a point politically. Um, I think Durham right. is and, the former. And think, yeah, and I think the other thing is to be discerning about who or what factors have has someone been spiritually formed? Right. Because not everybody's spiritual formation anymore is in line with the Word of God. That's right. And they have been they have been formed. Their spiritual formation uh, may be, uh, you know, with just or, or even they think it's from Scripture, but all they've heard from the pulpit is love, love, love. So. If, if you're loving somebody, that means now that you're just simply being kind and you're tolerating anything they do. And they think they're in line with the word of God on that. Right. Because they they have they, that's the big umbrella and everything else is subservient and they've misappropriated the word love. And well, and, and so in other words, it takes a lot of discernment. But 
it, the, the, the man's body language yesterday, everything in response, and he could have, it, you could just tell he was having a very personal moment there. That's it right. It was just flowing out, I believe. That's right. Well, uh, and obviously when somebody's reputation is called into question in front of the entire country, <laughs> that's going to elicit that kind of moment. That's going to cause you to run home in your in, in your philosophy of life and go to the things that are most important. When your reputation is called into question, you're going to defend it by the things that are most important. That's why I think it's interesting that he went back to, I'm most concerned about the people that are closest to me and, and God. And I appreciated that. Right. People in the chamber did too. It was a great I, moment. All right, uh, let's get to the I point. I did, I did too. Yeah, I, l the, let's get yes. to Let's get to the point. Supreme Court decision yesterday. A lot of, a lot of folks are kind of confused about this um, because it, it, it's being characterized as a win, but not a complete win. So, talk to us about this decision and why it's significant. Yes, and and I think again, one of the things we can use for discernment with our policymakers is the fruit of the policy. Okay, and so we have here. Uh, a Supreme Court that is sending something back to the Fourth Circuit. People need to understand this is, while this is about a state action, it had to do with Medicaid funding, which is a federal program. So therefore, the case has gone up through the federal system. All right. So it went to a federal circuit judge who held that, that Governor Henry McMaster had um, acted inappropriately when he when he existed when he uh, had an executive order that means an order he can put in place outside the legislature to say when we manage these Medicaid funds that are federal that come in to the state of South Carolina they're called pass-through funds and they um, they but but pass-through funds that we get to manage. There's a difference. There are some pass-through funds we can't do anything about, but these are pass-through funds that the state of South Carolina said, we manage this as part of our state Medicaid, the state portion of Medicaid. So the, the governor said, we're not going to make agreements with any agency organization that as part of their services offers abortion. He did not single out Planned Parenthood. You can't do that. But he could say, if you, as part of your services, also do abortions, we're not going to make a contract with you to do other kinds of services you might do, like family planning or mammograms. You may be doing all those things. But if you're adding abortion on, on your list of services, we're not going to make a contract with you. Right. Well, and the, so the, 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 real, real quickly. Real, real quickly, let me interrupt yeah. you long enough just to say that the case itself at the was a Fourth Circuit case, Kerr versus Planned Parenthood, South Atlantic. And the issue Correct. is whether or not funds intended to help low-income individuals obtain necessary medical assistance can be used for that purpose, 
but be pushed away from abortion providers like Planned Parenthood. And the argument is that Planned Parenthood is doing abortions. That's essentially what they're in business to do, regardless of what they say about other services. The other services pale in comparison to the number of abortions that they provide. And so does South Carolina have the right to take those Medicaid funds and to to push them away from Planned Parenthood? The Fourth Circuit said South Carolina can't do that. The Supreme Court vacated that decision and sent it back to the Fourth Circuit and said, you've got to look at this some more. Well, and what was significant to me there, they they used a case on whether a person, uh, an individual, could sue. And they had recently held that an individual could sue. And so they vacated it on that basis and said to the Supreme Court, yeah, I mean, to those um, four circuit, you now have to go back and you have to revisit your decision in light of that. Now, that's usually code. You got it wrong. Now, figure it out again right. and get it right. Right. All because- right. So that is hopeful. But they did not rule directly on on the question. They didn't say the, the Supreme Court did not say the state may or may not do this. They said four circuit you need to go back and figure this out in light of this other case we recently ruled on. And and that usually means we changed our mind. So now you need, we've got a new precedent in place. Now you go back and get it right. Right. It's given the court an opportunity to get in line with what the Supreme Court has said. And the Supreme Court, if, if I read this correctly, the Supreme Court is basically saying, look, if you want us to decide this, we will, but you won't like it. But so we're going to give you an opportunity to revisit this right. to get in line with what you you know we're we're kind of sending you a message here. This is what our exactly decision is exactly be. right. Now, what was interesting too is in vacating the order, uh, vacating the order right now. Right now, the state of South Carolina, from my reading, doesn't have to give any funds to Planned Parenthood. They don't have to make a contract with Planned Parenthood or any other organization that might be adding abortion to their services. Now, so that that was a that was a, a, a good point. The other thing about this Supreme Court that listeners might be interested in, they like to send things back. Yes. And let the courts under them make the decision and then they simply affirm now what the lower court did. They like that. Uh, I think our court right now is much more decentralized yes. in, uh, in, and and this helps us. They are going back to more of a federal system. So yes. they're going to give states much more deference, but they also are trying to get the, this circuit court and then the, Court of Appeals, like the Fourth Circuit, to begin to rethink, too, rather than they're just coming top down. They want them to have to work through the issues. But the fact that they vacated it and went back and now South Carolina is not under that right now, uh, I, I think gives us hope that the Fourth Circuit knows what they have to do here. Well, and that's a big so, win. That's a big win for life in South Carolina because that means it, it, it is. That means it, that money is not going to be flowing into Planned Parenthood's pockets through the state, through Medicaid, that is going to be used ultimately to perform abortions. So that's right, uh, because that's when a win. they get this money, 
that's a great point because when they Planned Parenthood or any other organization does abortions, when they get this money, they say, oh, we're not using it for abortions. But there is a shell game. It's a shell game. Right. Because they they are freed up then. They're freed up to use other monies for abortion because they're getting the state money for these other services. Right. And so um, anyway, it's very it's very it's very hopeful. And that's what I'm saying. We can look at the fruit and see things. Governor McMaster against much criticism. He issued that executive order, what, three or four years ago and got walked down pretty quickly by the circuit court and then the fourth and then the fourth circuit court of appeals. And honestly, you know, people thought it was over. And but, you know, he stuck his guns and Henry McMaster has proved over and over that he is pro-life. I mean, we can look at the fruit and that's what I think we as Christians, Tony, have to do. People can get out there and say, Lord, Lord, a lot, but look at their fruit. Right. Look at their fruit. Sure. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, yes. Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes through a list of things that could be considered Christian activity, but that's not the question. The question is, is, is a person... Does a person have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and is that relationship bearing fruit that is observable um, in in the culture, and so and in life, in their life? So that's a great point to make. Let and, me ask you one other quick yeah, question, and Lisa. Yeah, and, and it's the fruit lining up with Scripture. It's right. the fruit lining up with Scripture. Let me ask you an, another quick yeah. question. Uh, we're fast approaching June 27th, and that's going to be the date yes. that oral arguments are going to come before the South Carolina Supreme Court on the recently revamped heartbeat bill. So how are you feeling about that? And, um, of course, we're encouraging everybody uh, listening to the program today to pray about this, that uh, that the law will have favor in the eyes of the justices and that we'll see a reversal of a previous decision and see the heartbeat bill put into place. Oh, well, I am, I'm not going to say I'm optimistic. I'm, I am hopeful. cautiously hopeful. <laughs> yeah. hopeful. And, and, and that's the best I can say because of two things here, okay? Number one, I'm a little hopeful that they, the Supreme Court quickly took the case. Yes. Um, they, they, again, Henry McMaster asked that, that, the, that the case be expedited, which means put it at the top of the list to hear. But he also asked they wanted the injunction lifted on the current, on the newly passed law. And an injunction, I, I know our audience, your audience understands that that means that they've enjoined it and we can't implement the bill. The governor can't enforce the bill right now that would save uh, 40 to 50 percent of the children uh, in South Carolina. Right. And and so so they did not lift that injunction. Um, you have to have three votes to have to have lifted the injunction. Uh, now I'm hoping that they're inside. They they don't want to appear. Um, they want to appear deliberate. This right. is a serious issue. They want right. they. There is another law on the books that's called the heartbeat bill. And so, 
perhaps they're being cautious here and making sure people understand they are taking their role as judge seriously and they're not just lifting something now but here's the problem for they some people say there's a precedent there with the old heartbeat bill that means it preceded it and it should inform how the judges view this decision for the state of south carolina to argue um to argue that there's not a precedent because there was no one opinion there um they had to ask the supreme court for permission to argue against the precedent the supreme court turned that down um that is concerning um now they could have done it because they said hey there was no real there was there were three different opinions there and 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 there was really no precedent that could be it but it is concerning that they that that was a ruling so yeah here, know, here's the uh, thing uh, I, I think the most encouraging thing about this whole matter is that when the bill was passed and signed by the governor then the the south carolina supreme court agreed to expedite the hearing of the bill correct I, it seems to me that they're not going to expedite it if they're going to simply uphold the previous ruling um, on wh what is really a different bill. The heartbeat bill that passed before this heartbeat bill has significant differences that addressed some of the concerns expressed by members of the court. And of course, then it's going to really come down to this. And, and let's just let's just go cut to the chase here. It's going to come down to Justice Gary Hill uh, because Ch uh, Justice Hearn, who wrote the majority of, of opinion, aged out. She's no longer on the court. Justice Gary Hill replaced her, and if his and, and it's going the philosophy of whether or not a woman's right to privacy has been violated in the South Carolina Supreme Court, that's what's going to be front and center. And I would simply say this about it. I, without knowing anything or any inside information, I don't think the philosophy, the judicial philosophy of Justice Hill will allow him to, to rule on that a woman's right to privacy in the South Carolina Supreme Court based on the law, based on the Constitution, is something that's being violated by the heartbeat bill. So I'm hopeful that I'm correct in that, but I don't know. Right. Just well, and, and it may it may be that they they already have in looking at it say this bill is different, and it is different. It right. did address questions, and they they may be that three have already have already said there is there were three different opinions. They they were even three different opinions on the right to privacy in right. that. Right. Uh, you, you know, as far as how far it went and all of that. So, so, so the bottom, the bottom line is we don't know why they turned that down. It could have been good. It could have been bad. Uh, we don't know. And so what we do know is that it's going up fast before the Supreme Court. We don't know the reason, but we do know we can pray. And that is yes. what we are supposed to do. So, uh, I hope you'll just give out the names of the Supreme Court at some point before the oral argument so people really can pray Rest, for them. To pray for by them. Name, exactly. By exactly. name. Yeah. By Lisa, name. Lisa, listen, we got, I've we, got a, we have a thousand kids. Right. Yeah. We, we've got to, I've, I've got to run, but I really appreciate you being on the program this morning, giving me this much time. Uh, it's always a pleasure to hear oh. your analysis. Um, Lisa Van Riper, president of South Carolina Citizens for Life.
and good friend. God bless you. Thanks for being on today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tony. You all have a great day. You too. All right. Uh, quickly, before we run out of time for the program today, I want to go back to John Durham just for a minute and the, his testimony yesterday because the criticism for Durham didn't come exclusively from Democrats. While most Republicans on the committee refrained from criticizing him, Florida uh, Representative Matt Getz suggested that Durham neglected to investigate fully all of the evidence that pointed toward a manufactured crisis aimed at crippling the Trump presidency. So here's here's a little bit of what Matt Getz had to say in his questioning yesterday and Durham's response. The person who juices Papadopoulos to create this predicate that you find improper. You guys, you, I mean, did you ever know who his lawyer was, Mifsud's lawyer? Tonto was a lawyer in Europe. Not a, I don't know if so he wait, You could find the, the guy's States. lawyer, but you couldn't find him? We uh, contacted uh, somebody that we knew it had had represented him in a, a part of the effort to try to locate him. And you got the lawyer. And then now you're, you're sitting here in front of the judiciary saying you could find the guy's lawyer, but you couldn't effectuate the service of a subpoena because you couldn't find him? Well, you, first you know of all, that as you may or may not know, we wouldn't have um, the authority to serve a subpoena overseas. Um, the lawyer didn't know where Mifsud was. He was in communication uh, with him, but he claimed not to know where he was. And we are trying to arrange um, an opportunity to talk to Mifsud. Did you take uh, possession of two BlackBerry phones from Mifsud in any way? There were phones that were provided to us by oh, so you could find Mifsud's the phones lawyer. The guy, correct? Do you see how silly this looks? Like you found the lawyer, you found the phones, but the actual dude who yeah. got ordered by Western Intelligence to go start this thing, you couldn't find. It, it, it's it's kind of laughable. It seems like more than disappointment. It seems like you aren't really trying to expose the true core of the corruption. Now, I'm going uh, there, to, there's a lot more that could be said about this, and, and we may go into this on a, a show on the show tomorrow. But let me say this about John Durham, kind of wrapping up the discussion of Durham and his testimony. I think John Durham is an honorable man. I think he conducted this investigation in a manner that deserves the thanks of the American people. With one caveat, and I'll put this one caveat out there. As I listened to this testimony yesterday, I heard a lot of respect for for the Mueller, for, for Mueller personally, coming from John Durham. And I think that his respect for Mueller may have caused him to be a little bit less aggressive than he normally would have been, particularly as it relates to facts that arose during the Mueller investigation. I, I think he was very quick to uh, to condemn the FBI, and he should have been, because the FBI and the Justice Department has a lot to be condemned over. But when it comes to Mueller and the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report, evidence that Mueller looked into and that was uh, vetted one way or the other by the Mueller investigation, it seemed to me that John Durham was a little bit reluctant to take aim at some of that because of his respect for Mueller. I, I can see that happening. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's the right thing, but I'm saying that I understand it happening because when, when you have respect for somebody, um, you don't want to go after them. But when you're a prosecutor or an investigator, in the same way that we can't, we, we have to expect the Justice Department to be impartial in the way that they look at the facts, 
and try to seek the truth, we've got to expect that from the people that are investigating the investigators, so to speak. And my only criticism of Durham, again, I, this is this is just merely an observation. Um, I, I'm not saying he's he's a bad guy. I'm, I wouldn't go as far as Representative Gatz did in in criticizing him, but I will say that if you overall listen to the testimony, you find this respect for Mueller that may and, and a reluctance to call his particular uh, conclusions into question we may find why John Durham was not particularly aggressive in some areas of his investigation. I think his investigation reveals a lot. Uh, now, whether it would ever have, re have resulted in more um, indictments, I mean, that's one of the criticisms. They were, there, were, there was only one indictment, one or two indictments uh, that came out of his investigation. There should have been more. A lot of people expected more. But sometimes our expectations are just more than the evidence supports or more than is actually there. There are things that we can know, but for our, let, let me put it this way, from a Christian worldview perspective, from a biblical perspective, the things that we think we know, and sometimes the things we, the things we know, they have to be proven if you're going to go after somebody, ruin their reputation, and bring people into accountability. That's what the other side does. It doesn't consider the facts. It just makes accusations. We can't be guilty of that. We can suspect things. And I, th I think a lot of people listening to this program suspect a lot of things as it relates to Durham and his investigation. We can suspect those things, but if we don't have the facts to back up our suspicions, uh, we, we need to be careful about the conclusions that we reach. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I tell you, I want to talk about the censure of Adam Schiff. We were going to get to that today. We didn't get to it, but uh, we will, I promise, we'll talk about that some tomorrow briefly. That if you, if you haven't seen or heard the video of what took place in the House yesterday, I mean, it was chaos, and I want you to have a chance to hear it. We'll probably lead the show tomorrow talking about it. But for today, that's all the time. Listen, thanks for listening to Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. Once again, if you like the program, please spread the word on Facebook, on YouTube, um, just to your friends. Tell them to download the podcast. Tell them to follow me. And we'll continue to build the program and seek the truth in politics and culture. God bless you. Remember, God is in control. It's a crazy world, but God is still in control. Have a great day. Thank you.